Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Workers are taking our uh, wonderful kids. They've been going through a program of Christian uh, essential traits, and uh, they're finally coming to the end of that. I've, I've been encouraged to see how God moves through those things today. Amen. We want to open up our Bibles this morning to uh, 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7, if you find that in your Bible today, there's an interesting proverb that is presented to us, a philosophical question from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And if you want to look that up also at the same time, it's an interesting question that we ought to all consider in this place. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 gives us the answer to an interesting question. And I want you to think about this for just a moment as we uh, turn our minds to the matter of the word of God today. Let me ask you this question, which is better? A dog that is alive or a lion that is dead? Which is better today? A dog that is alive or a lion that is dead? Now we know that if you put a dog right next to a lion, that there is no comparison between the two. That while the dog might be fuzzy and cuddly and cute and trainable, that a lion is a far superior animal in almost every single way. A lion is known as the king of the jungle. But that is not my question, if they are both alive. The question is, is it better to be a living dog or a dead lion? There are some who would say that a dead lion is far better because at least you have a good reputation. But the answer to that question is in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 4. It says, for, for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Why? For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. The point of the story in Ecclesiastes 9 is that if you are alive, then you still have hope. That's why it's better to have a living dog than a dead lion. And with that thought in mind, we're going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 7, where we have a story of people who are on the verge of uselessness, who feel that they have no hope and no promise and no future and no destiny, who feel that they've lost hope, and so they are sitting around doing nothing. But I want to tell you that God powerfully used these people 
And I pray that you would find yourself in the scripture today. And I want to read just one verse, and then we'll get into this amazing story from 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3 says these words. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? And that is the question that I hope will get stuck into the back of your brain today. Why are we sitting here until we die? Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we come by the blood of Jesus, thanking you for the grace and mercy that you've shown. By the blood of Jesus and through the cross, I thank you today that, Lord, while we are yet alive, there is still hope for us. And I'm praying that you would use every soul that is hearing the voice of of your word today. We thank you for the grace and mercy that you pour out. Bring anointing upon this service in Jesus' mighty name. God's people would say, amen. Let me begin by setting the scene a little bit for you from our scripture. It's a terrible time in Israel. It's a terrible time to be alive in this, in this uh, scenario. The nation of Israel had been attacked by the Syrians. And the strategy of the time was called a siege. They put them under siege. And all that that means is that the army would block every entrance and every exit of the city. They would allow nothing to come in and nothing to go out. They would block the city. And the strategy was beginning to work. Now, in those days, of course, Jerusalem... There was, it was a walled city. It was a city with a literal wall around it. And so if nothing was going in and nothing was coming out, how many know it's only a matter of time before they run out of essential items? A city has a limited amount of resources. If you don't think that that's true, then just go to the Walmart about two days before a hurricane comes. The Walmart gets emptied out. And that's because when nothing is coming in, nothing is going out, when a siege lays hold of a city, the resources begin to be bare. Now, the Syrians have taken Jerusalem and put this city under siege, and it truly became a horrible situation, a horrible time, a terrible time to be alive. Because the people were starving, it changed the values of those peoples the morals began to began to change even while they were starving people were so hungry that they were selling uh they were selling the 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 droppings of birds and and extracting some kind of nutrition out of them it was so terrible that that two women began having a conversation about whose baby they would eat next it was so terrible that people were starving to death. This is the situation in which we find these four leprous men. It was a terrible time to be alive. And a nation that is under siege is a nation where values are radically changing. I believe this is an accurate description of things that are happening in the United States of America and in our culture today where morals are radically transforming in a very short amount of time. In a very short span of time, it seems that, that uh, our, our values and our morals have begun to change, and it is because of a similar reason that the enemy is holding our culture 
hostage, putting us under a demonic siege where it seems like the Spirit of God does not move in the same way. But more than that, this morning, the devil is a master at laying siege to your mind and to your life to give you the impression that God no longer wants to move and nothing will come in and nothing is coming out. That your life has put on hold. It's your future. And in a situation like that, when the devil lays siege to your home, to your family, to your job, to your city, to your finances, to your children, the devil says, nope, nothing good happening here. Nothing good going in and nothing good coming out. And so we see ourselves in a sort of spiritual starvation as if God is not there. We find ourselves feeling the way that David felt in Psalm 143, verse 3. He says, my enemy has chased me. He has knocked me to the ground. He forces me to live in darkness like those in the grave. I'm losing all hope. I'm paralyzed with fear. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe some of you feeling like that this morning. It's a result of demonic siege. As he lays hold of the entrances of your mind, your eyes, your ears. How many of you know we're under assault every day of what we see, what we hear, the media, the news, the terrible, tragic things that happen around us on a daily basis, the enemy controlling what's happening to come into our minds. It lays a siege on our mind, and we begin to think, God could not move here. God could not move in my life again. This is why, beloved, it's so critical what you give your eyes to and your ears to because they are the gateway to your soul. You can't just watch anything and everything. You can't just listen or read anything and everything. You can't just put on every radio station. You can't do it. Because the enemy uses the gateways to our soul. And if, if he can gain a hold of your ears and a certain station and a certain artist and a certain mentality, then he stops the Spirit of God from coming into your soul. And that's when a siege mentality begins to take hold of our minds. But it's in this terrible situation that we find some unlikely, unknowing heroes. And we've gotten an introduction to them here in verse 3 of 2 Kings chapter 7. There were four leprous men. Now, if you have any uh, understanding of the ancient sickness of leprosy, you know that was a terrible, awful, very bad, no good disease. It was a type of disease that would separate you from society. Leprosy in the ancient world, and and yes, even still today, there are places where leprosy still takes hold. But especially in the ancient world, before we have medical technology able to address and to treat the sickness, that the moment it would break out on someone's skin, and it would break out, the way it would present itself was through a, uh, your skin would begin to turn white, the hair would begin to fall off. 
And as immediately when people would see leprosy on your skin, do you know what the next thing would happen? They would separate you. They would kick you out of the city. Whatever job that you had, whatever trade, whatever family, wife, children, doesn't matter who you are. If you have leprosy, you cannot be together with people. In almost every large population group outside the city, there was a leper colony. There was a place that you would send people who had leprosy and they would go to those terrible leprous colonies where people who had leprosy would spend the rest of their miserable days. Because leprosy had the effect of doing far more than just changing the color of your skin. The hair would fall off. And what leprosy would do, the reason why it was so terrible was because it would attack the nervous system of, of your body. And what that means is that there would be pieces and parts of your body that would no longer be able to feel. Have you ever, um, uh, there, there are some people like my wife who she always, whenever she sits down, she forgets that she sits with a leg underneath her, you know, something like this. And she'll sit there for about five or ten minutes, and by the time she wakes up or gets up, you know, the, the entire leg below the knee is no longer being felt, right? The blood has been cut off, and so you lose feeling. And then there's that process of that tingling and that painful sensation as the blood enters back into your leg. Well, could you imagine that leprosy had this effect on your entire body? And the reason that people began to fall apart literally is because they would be walking down the street or walking somewhere or doing some kind of activity and harm themselves, but they'd no longer be able to feel. And because they could no longer feel their body being hurt, they would not notice if you broke your ankle uh, and continued walking, uh, you know, you, you're doing damage to your foot and eventually there's infection and gangrene and literally your body, body would begin falling apart. You could cut open your finger and not notice it, be bleeding. By the time you notice it, the skin is already hanging off. And so if you were to travel into one of these leper colonies, you would find people missing limbs, missing arms, missing fingers, missing feet, missing noses, eyeballs. And this was the definition of what the leprous life was like. If you were found to be with leprosy, it was like a death sentence. It was the most feared disease that one could contract in those days. And that's why it's mentioned so often in the Bible, because leprosy is often used as an illustration of sin. The same way that leprosy affects the body is the way that sin affects your soul. Stick with me for a moment. The reason is because when you are afflicted by sin, it causes the same effect. It causes you to stop feeling. Eventually, we become callous to the conviction of God. Eventually, we no longer... How many know the first time you told a lie, you were filled with guilt? <gasps> I told a lie. But then the second time you told a lie, and the third time, and the fourth time, and eventually, you can lie... And not even feel it. That's what a sociopath is. Someone who can look in your face and tell you a lie and believe that they're telling the truth. Because they've told so many lies. Someone who can hurt people 
without any uh, consequence in their own feeling, in their own heart. See, what that is, it's a spiritual leprosy. Are you with me this morning? And so we find these four men, leprous men. We don't know how long they've been lepers. We don't know how long they've had the disease. We don't even know how long they've been sitting there. But we do know that they had leprosy. And so enter the mind of the leprous person for just a moment. A leprous person does not want to get married. A person who has leprosy does not want to make investments for the future. A person who has leprosy does not want to, uh, does not want to get himself involved in affairs of life. Do you know why? Because his days are limited. Very limited. A person with leprosy doesn't care how he lives. He's happy to just be content and sit like a bump on a log, hoping, hoping that one day his misery will end. There he sits, four of them with leprosy, enter their mind, think about what it must be like. This is why I love this story. Because the main characters have been rejected. They are sick. They probably have body parts hanging off. They certainly don't look like heroes. There's no Superman, Iron Man. There's no Chris Hemsworth among them. They can't fight. They can't even swing a fist. Most of them don't even have fists to swing. Even if they wanted to do something about the terrible siege that is taking place to Jerusalem just down the street, what could they possibly do? Are they going to fight the Syrians? Are they going to wage war? Are they going to open the the city gates again? Come on! They're lepers. One of the most important things when you're reading the Bible, y'all still with me, right? One of the most important things about reading the Bible is finding yourself in the story. See, the Bible is not given just as a historical narrative, as something that we should read like a history book and just to get information about previous events. The Bible is a story where we must allow these stories to speak into our lives today. And the way that we do that, the way that I do that anyway, is I have to find myself in the story. And when we look at this story, remember the characters that are introduced so far. We have the the Jews that are in Jerusalem who are under siege and their morals are changing and bad things are happening. We have the Syrians who are the enemy and they're on the outside of the gates laying siege to the city. And then we have these four lepers on the outside who seem like they have nothing to do with the whole story yet. But we're going to find out that the that the person that we are in this story, we most resemble, is those four lepers. Who are these guys? They are guys that don't think that they can do anything to improve the situation. But they are God's key to setting this city free. And I want to tell you, I see a few lepers out here this morning. That you are telling yourself today... I have no hope. There's no way that I can do anything to change my generation. I don't think that there's any hope for me or my family or my future or my finances or my friends. 
I don't think that I'm going to be able to accomplish anything because who am I? I'm just infected by sin. I'm struggling every day just to barely stay saved. If God can use four lepers, why can't he use you? I was inspired this morning to preach this message. As we were there uh, in the Harvester's Homecoming, uh, Pastor Suspansky preached last night. And listen, this is the reason why you need to go to these events. This is why you need to get a job that's not going to take you out of church events, because I was truly inspired last night. God spoke to me. And this is why uh, I want to share with you a story that he related during his sermon last night. He told a story about a guy in his church. At one time, he had been a pastor and had been effective for the gospel, but came back into the church, him and his family. And he said that for 10 years, this brother and his family, they were coming to church. He would sit in his chair on Sunday mornings. He would give his tithe. But outside of that, he was doing nothing for the kingdom. In other words, he was coming to church. He was raising his family. He was doing the basic things that a good Christian person should do. But outside of his attendance and his giving and his family responsibilities, there he sat. And he said, for 10 years, for 10 years, this man sat listening to sermons and doing nothing. And for 10 years, Pastor, uh, Pastor Suspansky was, was trying to encourage this man. He told the story that, you know, every chance that he would get, he would try to shake the man's hand, encourage him, and tell him, hey, man, God's still got a plan for your life. God still wants to help you. But the, eventually, uh, the man grew weary of that, so he would, he would show up just right after, you know, the song service ended so that... He knew Pastor Suspansky was up on the stage and wouldn't be able to talk to him. And he would scurry out of the building before the service was over. And Pastor Suspansky was sharing with the congregation how his heart was beating for this man. He cared about him. Wanted to minister him and wanted the man to be effective again for the kingdom. But for 10 years, there he was. And one day, this man came to Pastor Suspansky and shared with him that his heart was changing. And he said, what happened to you, brother? What happened? All of a sudden, now he's showing up to the prayer meetings. All of a sudden, now he's there in the morning prayer meeting. All of a sudden, now he's bringing visitors to the church service with him. And it was amazing that almost overnight that he became so he started to be effective once again, started to engage in the kingdom of God. And Pastor Suspansky came to this man and said, what happened to you? He said, well, I don't know. It was just a Wednesday night service. I was in the Wednesday night service and you preached something. I don't remember exactly what you preached, but I came to the altar and this is what he said. He said, I felt like those lepers asking themselves a question. Why do we sit here until we die? And when he asked himself that question, God convicted him. God said, I can still use your life. And I sa he said to himself that he's going to start being involved again. So my question is the similar for you. How long will you sit there? This is the question 
that these men asked themselves, these leprous men at the entrance of the gate, they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Not too long ago, I uh, did an interview on my podcast with a guy named Carl Milliman. He was actually the very first, him and his wife, uh, they were the very first pastors to be launched by our fellowship into this city in Virginia Beach. Um, he was here for about a year and a half and then uh, joined together with a, a second church that uh, Pastor Stacy Dillard had started here. And now here we are more than 25 years later. <laughs> this congregation is directly connected to this man, Carl Milliman. Well, we, I did an interview with this man, Carl Milliman, and, uh, and I was amazed at his testimony. If you don't know it, uh, I'm not going to retell the whole story, but go back and listen to that podcast. It was in three parts. His life was in shambles. He, in many ways, became like one of these leprous men. His life fell apart. His marriage fell apart. His children, his finances, his ministry, it all fell apart. But his testimony is that God had grace on him. I don't know how long these leprous men were sitting there. But I do know how long some of you have been sitting there. And I want to tell you that as long as you're sitting, you're dying. Like a leprous person parts of your ministry falling away, parts of your life for God falling off. I've said before that living for God is like riding a bicycle up a hill. And if you stop pedaling, if you stop pushing, if you stop acting, it won't be long until gravity takes hold. That's why we talk about backsliders that's why the word of God speaks about the backslidden nation of Israel because for them to live for God was the same. Living for God is like riding a bicycle up a hill and the moment you stop pedaling, stop trying, stop pushing, stop giving, stop ministering, stop praying, then the gravity of life begins to pull us back down and that's what backsliding really means. It doesn't mean that necessarily you're an evil person, that you're back in your old sins and addicted to your old addictions. No, backsliding simply means that you used to be closer to God than you are now. And if we use that definition, then guess what? We can all backslide. But this is where we find such incredible hope. And I'm not here to bum you out this morning. All I want you to see is that maybe you are one of those lepers. Oh no, Pastor. I'm on the top of my game. If you can find yourself in these four lepers sitting there, then I want to tell you there's hope for your life today. God wants to use you as his key for revival in our last days. Look at the powerful question that led these men to action. And the powerful question that this man from Pastor Suspansky's church asked himself. And the question that you need to ask yourself this morning 
in verse 3, why are we sitting here until we die? Every sinner needs to ask himself that question. The life of sin is the life that leads to a devil's hell. And even though you might be active in this life and doing many things, the life of sin is spiritually sitting there like a person with leprosy. But the question, why are we sitting here until we die? What a powerful question. And look at the logic that is behind the question in verse 4. This is, a quest, this is a generation that is in love with logical thinking and logical point of view and in love with scientific fact. And uh, I don't really think that that's true, but that's what the outward appearance says. But look at their logical position behind their question. If we say, verse 4, we will enter the city and famine is in the city, we'll gonna, we're going to die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we'll live. And if they kill us, then we'll just die. They are saying to themselves, what's the worst that could happen? They already know what the worst is, right? The worst is that their leprosy is going to kill them. They're going to sit there until they die. If they go into the city, then they're going to sit there until they die. And so they say to themselves, what if, what if we get up off of our logs? What if we stand up and we just go down over there to the enemies and see what happens? We could just surrender to them. Who knows what will happen? Maybe they'll chop our heads off in a second. Maybe, maybe they'll put us to work or maybe, but what's the worst that could happen? The same thing that happens if we sit here. Right? This is a powerful question. It changed their entire lives. It's a question that led them to stop feeling sorry for themselves. It's a question that, that led them to do something rather than doing nothing. It's a question that got them beyond, what can I do? I'm only one person. And it's a question that you you need to ask yourself. I'm only one person, Pastor. What am I going to do? I'm just a stinking leper. I've got so many problems. Who's, who's going who's gonna to help me? It took their focus off of themselves and began to put the focus somewhere else. They stopped feeling sorry for themselves. And I want to tell you, God likes that. And when these men made that simple move. They asked a simple question. They came to a simple, logical conclusion. And they did a simple act where they got up off of their leprous butts and started going somewhere. And God said, Finally! Somebody is doing something! And God got involved. God is looking for someone to do something. God is looking for someone who will pray something. God is looking for somebody who will start a ministry. What ministry, pastor? I don't care. Any ministry. Start a ministry. A Bible study. An outreach. 
He's looking for someone who will do something. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness, who guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. God is searching in the city of Virginia Beach for somebody. Will he find someone? Will he find someone here this morning? It said in verse 5 that they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. Look at what God did. Verse 6. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses. The noise of a great army. And they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of Hittites and Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled. And they left the camp intact with all their tents and their horses and their donkeys and they fled for their lives. And these lepers came to the camp And they went into one tent. Oh, and I love this scripture. I'm telling you. And they ate and they drank and they took silver and gold and clothing. They went and hid them. They're like pirates, man. We found a treasure. They buried it. They came back. They went into another tent. They carried some from there also. Man, these guys struck it rich. Then verse 9. We're not doing right. Today is a day of good news. And we are silent. The Bible says that when they stood up to do something, that God empowered them. They didn't even know how powerful they were. Can you imagine the scene? Four lepers walking down the road. I love it. I, I want to see the DVD when we get to heaven. Four lepers, their body parts dangling off like zombies walking through the middle of the night. They're walking and they're limping along. But as they are there walking, they've got no hope. They've got they're, all they're expecting is we're going to get there and we're going to die in their mind. That's what they're thinking. Either we sit here until we die or we go there and then we die. And they're walking. Maybe one of them with no legs, he's crawling. Maybe the one with no arms and no legs, he's just using his tongue. He's rolling. Yeah, they're kicking him down so he can roll. Come on, let's go, buddy. But God took their meager, stupid little efforts, and he made them sound like a mighty army. By the time that shuffling sound... You know, like the the sound that zombies make when they're walking. God took that sound and he made it into the sound of horses and chariots. He made it sound like the thunder clouds rolling. He made it sound fearful in the ears of the enemy. So fearful that they panicked and fled and left all of their food and all of their gold. And they said, we got to get out of here. 
And what did they find? When they got to the Syrian camp, they found a feast. They found Golden Corral. And they found a bank with the vault open. I'm asking you today, what will you find if you get up off of your log? What will you find if you quit being so spiritually lazy? What will you find if you put your hand to the plow once again? What will you find if you simply stand and believe God once again? What will you find if you step out in faith? These men didn't even have any faith, but at least they stepped out. And they found that day not only victory for themselves, they found victory for their entire city. After the second day of feasting, can you imagine these guys? They eat so much that they're ashamed and they've got Thanksgiving bellies at the end. And after their thanksgiving bellies, they're taking the gold and the silver that they found and burying it in the hills. And then the second day, they said they did the same thing. Two days of feasting and merriment. And finally, they said, today's a day of good news and we are silent. They said, if we wait until morning, some punishment comes upon us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king. Because right next door, remember, the people were still under siege. Right next door in Jerusalem, the people were still starving. Right next door across the city gate, there was people still in desperate need. And they realized that they held the key to setting their entire city free. Do you realize this morning that you hold the key for your entire family? You hold the key for your unsaved loved ones. You hold the key for those who are spiritually starving to death and losing their morality. You hold the key. If you have come into the, 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 the tent of the enemy and you have found the keys to victory, listen, it's not just for you. We come to church and we get our full Thanksgiving bellies spiritually. Oh, pastor, that was a good sermon. I get so tired of hearing that. I'm glad that you enjoy my preaching. Don't get me wrong. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to start praying? Are you going to start giving? Are you going to start witnessing? That's what I really want to see. I want to see someone get involved. I want to see someone learn an instrument. I want to see someone bring a friend to the church service. I want to see somebody come to outreach on Saturday. Win a soul. Make a difference. Miraculous results because some leprous men stepped out. I am so grateful that the Lord uses lepers, aren't you? (laughs) If God can use four lepers, why can't he use you? Men who had no hope and no future. 
And no money, by the way. And no good looks and no talent. But there they were. God used them. Don't tell me that you can't do something for God. Pastor, I'm too young or I'm too old. The time has already passed. It's over for me. Numbers 22 that says that the Lord caused a donkey to speak. God can use donkeys. So there's hope for you. The mighty men of David. The mighty men of David. Yeah, they have a great title, don't they? The mighty men of David. You know how they started? 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. Everyone who is in debt, everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is discontented gathered to him. And he became captain over them. (laughs) Bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells. In debt, in distress, and discontented. Sounds like millennials. And he became captain over them. And they turned into the mighty men of David. Who did Jesus choose? He didn't choose scholars or warriors. He did not choose the greatest of men. He chose fishermen. Simple. Men with characters and backgrounds. I want to leave you with one of my favorite stories. Stories of people who were not successful in their lives until later on in life. I found a list here of eight highly successful people who only found success later in life. Samuel L. Jackson didn't get his Hollywood break until age 43. Stan Lee didn't create his first comic until he was 39 years old. Julia Child worked in advertising for most of her life, didn't release her first cookbook until age 50. Rodney Dangerfield made his great break at the age of 46. Vera Wang wanted to become a figure skater. Her dream was crushed and failed to make the team, entered the fashion industry at age 40. Ray Kroc, founder of McDonald's. What we don't know is that he didn't purchase McDonald's until he was 52 years old, but my favorite of all time is the picture of the man that we're going to put up on the screen. The colonel, he is more than just a cartoon. Every time you pass his restaurant, you have to be inspired. And you want to, tell, you want to know why? I'm going to tell you his story, and then we're going to close. He was born in 1890, grew up on a farm in Indiana. When he was six years old, his father died. He had to take care of his younger brother and sister while his mom spent long days working to support the family. One of his responsibilities was feeding his siblings, and by the age of seven, he already knew how to cook. His mother remarried when he was 12 years old. His new stepfather didn't like to have the boys around, so Sanders and him were sent to live with an aunt about 80 miles away. Sanders soon realized that he would rather work all day than go to school, so he dropped out in the seventh grade. He joined the Army, and Sanders spent the first half of his life working a series of odd jobs, including stoking steam engines, selling insurance, selling tires, making lighting systems, operating a ferry boat. In 1930, he purchased a service station in Kentucky. And at that service station, he learned how to sell classic southern dishes to travelers. 
The location became known not just for gasoline, but for its food. Eventually, got rid of the the gas pump and converted the location to a full-fledged restaurant. The breakthrough came in 1939 when he found that frying chicken and his signature 11 herbs and spices in a new device, a pressure cooker, resulted in the ideal consistency that he had been looking for. Colonel Sanders' restaurant enjoyed great popularity for the next decade, and in 1950, the governor of Kentucky named him Colonel, the highest title of honor that the state could give. Sanders began dressing the part, adopting a white suit and a Kentucky Colonel tie that would help him make a pop culture icon. And in 1952, he made a deal with his friend Pete Harmon to sell his chicken dish as, quote, Kentucky Fried Chicken. He made the deal for a four-cent royalty on every piece of chicken that was sold. It became a top-selling item. He made the same deal with many other local restaurants. Things were going great, but he sold his restaurant in 1956, and he decided that he was not going to settle for a quiet retirement. KFC and Sanders Cafe sign at the site of his restaurant. Since he had closed the restaurant, he decided to dedicate himself fully to franchising that he had started four years earlier. And in 1963, he began fielding franchise requests without having to put in the legwork. And more than 600 restaurants began selling his chicken. You know how old he was? He was over 60. By the age of 75, he wasn't happy to let go of his baby, but at 75, he decided that it would be best to see his company continue to grow beyond his capacity. Today, it's an international success story. We went to Bucharest, Romania, and had KFC a couple of weeks ago. But he didn't catch his big break until after he was 60 years old. A life defined by turmoil, ups and downs ins and outs, odds and ends. There's hope for you. Pastor Suspansky was so funny. He was talking about how 15-year-old children would come to him and say, Pastor, I don't know if I can do any more. My life, it's over. When I was younger, I had it good. But it's common today. We go through so much and we think that, oh, it's not possible that God could use me. Baloney. God can use you. Get over it. Go forward. If God can use four lepers whose bodies were falling apart to be the key, set the people free. What about you? Don't you suppose that God could get a hold of your life? Don't you suppose that God is bigger than your current situation. He's bigger than your current needs and desires. He's bigger. And no matter how old you are, your life is not over yet. We've got a 95-year-old sitting here this morning. 96-year-old. She's still living for God. Why can't you? Let's bow our heads. And close our eyes. Why do we sit here until we die? We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up 
at our website, vvph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website at vvph.org and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.